you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Please join me in reading from God's Word, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 14. Rules for Holy Living, Chapter 3 Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ too is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since... You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, holy and Dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love. All these oh wait, no, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the God. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) That is great. Amen. Well, good morning. I just found out that these uh, seats recline. I don't know if they vibrate. Keep feeling around on the buttons. You might find some new things. Um, I would ask that all the young adults who might be um, kind of tired after a, a rather extensive weekend, um, if you put the chair back, at least advise the person next to you if you start snoring to kind of give you that gentle whatever so as not to kind of distract those of us who are focused. It's great to be with you this morning. Tell you what, let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you this morning for the blessing of being able to call you our Father, made possible because of all that you are for us in Jesus. We're beggars, utterly and thoroughly bankrupt in and of ourselves, and yet we've encountered the living Christ, and all the beauty that is wrapped up in Jesus has become now part and parcel with who we are. And we, we thank you for that. Thank you for 
your desire to change us, for your unwearying patience that perseveres with us. Your commitment to preserve that work that you began in us will go all the days of our life and bring us to that ultimate reality when our faith one day will be made sight. That that which we hope for now will become that glorious reality that bathes us for all eternity. So Father, we ask this morning that you would corral our thoughts, that you would be the sovereign sentinel of our lives because there are competing narratives that might distract us lest our mind be stayed on you. And so this is a holy undertaking, Father, this morning. There's one message, one messenger, frail at best. And yet the blessed Holy Spirit, who is all-powerful, able to search each and every aspect of our life and to bring us to the place where we respond in faith and obedience to that which he shows. So, Father, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And Father, there may be some here this morning who are not yet servants. And so we pray that you would speak to them anew. That you would cause them to see in Jesus everything that they could possibly want. And so, so much more. And we'll thank you for what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen. Historian Daniel Borstein records for us a a monumental shift that occurred in the 19th century throughout North America. People stopped calling those who went on trips travelers and started calling them tourists. You see, traveler literally means one who travails. She labors, she suffers, she endures. She immerses herself in culture, gets impregnated with a new and strange reality. She learns the language and customs, lives with the locals, imitates the dress, and eats whatever is put in front of her. She takes risks, some enormous, makes sacrifices, and some of them extravagant. She has tight scrapes and narrow escapes, and often she's gone for a very, very long time. And if she ever returns... She returns forever altered. And in a sense, she never really goes back home. But a tourist, not so. You see, tourist literally means and comes from a French word, one who goes in circles. He's not just taking an exotic trip, but a detour home only passing through, sampling wares and acquiring cheap souvenirs. He tastes more than he eats, and he retreats each night into what is safe and familiar. He picks up a word here and a phrase there, but the language and the world that it is embedded in remains opaque, cryptic, and strangely even annoying. He's merely a spectator, a consumer, returning home with a phone full of photos, a a few mementos, and probably a cheap t-shirt. He's happy to be home, and he tells everybody, (laughs) 
There ain't no place like home. You see, we've made a a similar shift, I believe, in the church. At some point, we stopped calling people disciples and we started calling them believers. You see, a disciple is a learner, a follower, an imitator of Jesus. They lose their life in order to find it. They soak in the language and culture of Christ until his word and his world reshapes theirs. Redefining them, changing them from the inside out on how they see, think, dream, and live. You see, whatever values and habits they bring into his realm, his world are reordered. Many times laid waste and kingdom values and kingdom holy habits take their place. Friends who knew them before scarcely remember them now. But a believer... Not necessarily so. You see, they hold certain beliefs, but how deep down they go depends on their mood, the weather, or the collective consensus of those who surround them. You can't be a disciple without being a believer. But here's the rub. You can be a believer without being a disciple. You can say all the right things, think all the right things, believe all the right things, and do all the right things, and yet still not follow and imitate Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God is made up of travailers. But if you and I are not careful in forging the right habits in the right way, we may find that our churches are largely populated with tourists. And it's sobering. For years, we've been telling the world to believe the gospel. And now the world is telling us to behave the gospel. Of all the top sins, sin, top 10 sins that exist in our current culture, They are occurring in the church with a negligible statistical difference. And they're wondering, even some of my former atheist friends who used to say, prove to me a God, they don't say that anymore. I'll give you that one. My question now is, what difference does it make? And here we come to this little tiny portion of scripture in Colossians chapter 3. And if you have a hard copy or a digital copy, get a copy and put these words in front of you in Colossians 3. This small passage, when rightly understood, carries with it a sense of spaciousness. But there often comes after time when you and I get familiar with the ideas and the beliefs of our life in Christ that we, we lose the graceful rhythms of the dance and we settle into this mundane workhorse plotting of the same old, same old. Our colorful imaginations get lost in the heavy, grayer world of the same old, same old performance. But I'm telling you, Christian thought is beautiful. 
God designed it to, to cause us to be gobsmacked at the wonder of all that he is. You know, theology was once called the queen of the sciences. Dorothy Sayers once called the Christian gospel the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. But sadly, when we move into the realm of the relational, sometimes the excitement fades because relationships are the most refining crucible into which God places us. The hardest place for you to live Christ and to make him known will be in the context of relationships. And if you're married, that will be the proving ground. You are never more like Jesus or unlike Jesus than in the marriage relationship because what happens is in relationships of continuity and familiarity and of perpetuity and of longevity, what happens? We let our hair down. We tend to live unrestrained lives. We relax and think, you know, we're married. And the proving of that has to come out. Someone once said that the trouble with being a Christian is that's such a daily sort of thing. <laughs> but if it means anything at all, it has to get into the world of what we do between when we wake up in the morning and when we go to bed at night. It must penetrate into the realm of the routine. Unplanned, spontaneous speech, habitual responses, casual reactions, social media posts. What you do when no one else is watching what you do. And so today we're taking the third in the arenas where holy habits need to be fleshed out. And though last week the focus was on spiritual, this is no less spiritual. For all life in Christ is sacred. What you do in the bedroom and what you're doing right here this morning and those who are engaged in any kind of ministry are equally exciting and purposeful in Christ. And this is, this is the struggle because we're losing the fragrance, that aroma of which Luke spoke of Jesus. So before we can start by putting any of these things together, we have to realize that these relational habits are sourced in and spring up out of all that we have in Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at three areas. Our position in Christ our power in Christ, and our provision in Christ. Do you see a continuity in all three? Do you see a common denominator that surfaces that in Christ? You see, your address in the shortest, most concise way is in Christ. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ... He's a new creature. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. If you're considering becoming a Christian, if you don't like change, stay away from Jesus. Because he will be committed to changing you and taking you, dragging you at times and gently wooing you at times to leave that which seems comfortable 
in order that he might shape his life, his very character in you. This is what's happening here in this passage before us this morning. Colossians chapter 10, 1 in verse 10, it says, So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does it mean to walk worthy? Worthy. It conjures up a word picture of scales. You see, when you don't live a balanced life, here's what it means. The wealth of who we are in Christ, when put on the scale, tips the scale. And now we're called to live. We're called center stage before a watching world to live Jesus and to make him known. And so if we walk in a manner worthy, we balance the scales. We allow the weight of our walk to reflect the wealth of all that we have in Jesus. And so we begin now by looking at our position in Christ. Look at these first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ and seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, He is your life. And when he appears, notice what it says, then you also will appear with him in glory. Look at this stunning statement that Paul is making concerning the centrality of Jesus. For the Christian, everything makes sense only in the sense of our identity and our relationship, and our union with Jesus. Paul's reminding us that, that we have been participants in a great saving event, and there is nothing same old about it. You know, I, I heard John Piper just last week in one of my favorite sermons of his, and he just goes, you never, 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 Never did I say never outgrow the gospel. And Jesus is echoing that through Paul as he writes here. He's reminding us. And you know, if I'm honest, my life is not nearly as Christ-centered as it ought to be. And this is what makes this passage so indescribably important. You've got to see your position so let me emphasize the Christ-centeredness of the apostle once again. We have been raised with Christ in the past. That's verse 1. We are hidden with Christ in the present, verse 3. And we will appear with Christ in the future, verse 4. And if that's not a reality, it ends all hope of a break with the past, power in the present, and any hope for glory in the future. You see, the only life that we now have is actually the life of Christ in us. The only reason that Paul exhorts us to set our hearts and minds on things above is because 
that's where, that's where Jesus is. You know? My son came to faith in Christ and lived two and a half years as a follower of Jesus before he found out that he was going to heaven. And he said, do I get to go to heaven too? Yeah. <laughs> and he just thought, bonus. You know, he just, he doesn't have any aware. Because a lot of times, you know, do you want to go to heaven? Well, who doesn't? But that's not the question. It's the reality of how are we related to Jesus? And these things above, these things are where Christ is. They're Christ things. That's what makes them important. So this is our position. And that kind of flows into the next reality is how do we make all this possible? Because beginning at verse 5, it talks about our power in Christ. Have you ever struggled to be free of a nagging sin, one that dogged your heels, that stayed with you like a bad smell, something that you love to get rid of and you would try to not, you know, think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about mine. Don't think, and you're thinking about it. And, and you would try different strategies and it would just kind of rear up and bite you in the gluteus maximus and you think, oh man, again. And you you know, and struggle after struggle. And a lot of times our strategies are pathetic. We just tell people don't do it. But there's a, there's a better reason. Where does the power and incentive come from to live a life that, notice verse 5, it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 9 ends by saying, put off the old self with its practices. So we've got a putting off of something, kind of the idea of shedding the garments, getting buck naked before a holy God. And then putting on something in its place, adorning ourselves with the very righteousness of Jesus. Putting off and putting on, and this is articulated in this passage. Well, notice this power in Christ. Where does it come from? Well, it harkens back because look, it says, put to death, therefore. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, stop and see what it's there for. It's a clause in the Greek language, which means it hearkens your focus to that which just preceded it. In other words, the reality of what I'm going to tell you now about getting rid of all this crud, the only way that you're going to kill it, put it to death, and execute it, and not let it live for another second, is by the reality of meditating on the majesty of being raised with Jesus. By fixing your soul upon the splendor of the exaltation of Jesus. By celebrating your being hidden in Jesus. By anticipating joyfully the glory that yet awaits you when he comes. A lot of people say, you, um, boy, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Well, I want to tell you, the more heavenly minded that you are, the more of earthly value you will become. You need to be obsessed with the person 
of Jesus. You need to be captivated with Jesus. Why? Because all of these things in verses 1 to 4 make possible the putting off of verses 5 through 9. Because enjoyment empowers our effort. Pleasure in God is the power for purity. I've been married longer than many of you are old. And do I have the capacity to be unfaithful to my wife? In my flesh, there dwells no good thing. And if my flesh is not dealt with, and I'm not talking about this, the flesh is the strategies and the techniques and the ways and means that you've chosen to do what you do independent of Jesus. They're the default settings in your life. They're those automatic kind of response patterns that you do. But you know what I do? I sit in front of my wife. I have pictures of my wife strategically located in the places where I spend time. And I look at those photos. And you know what? My wife is just as old as I am. Gravity is beginning to take its impact upon both of us. I used to tell people I kind of tip my hair platinum. It stink. It's white now. You know, but you know what? Every time I look at her, I'm gobsmacked. And I, I love her. And, and I just, there's nobody better. And there's something in that is it nourishes within me. This pleasure that I take in my wife is the source of purity and maintaining the fidelity that I have committed to in my marriage. You see, there's an expulsive power of a greater affection that when I am so transfixed, when I am so caught up with all that God has done for me in Jesus. It just has this way of forcing out anything at all that will want to vie for my attention and be my undoing. That's why Puritan John Owen once wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Dusty Bibles lead to dirty lies. We need to be people, Spurgeon described as people who when we are cut, we bleed bibline. That the truth of Christ is something that is so integral to who we are. This is why from verses 1 to 4, now in verses 5 to 9, there's such a stark contrast. Paul is saying, take whatever steps are needed to eliminate this from your life. Take no compromise. Tolerate no prisoners. There will be no middle ground because there's never a ceasefire with sin. There are no demilitarized zones to which we can flee because the flesh never takes a holiday. It never goes on sabbatical and we need to fight it. And then notice what he says there, our provision in Christ. Look what is wrapped up in Jesus. It says, put on then as God's, I love this, chosen ones, holy and beloved. God made a choice. That's, this is the doctrine of election. God made a choice in eternity past that in time, I 
would be one of his. And by his grace, he chose. And by his grace, he declares me holy. He sets me apart as his private possession. His private purse, as Titus calls it. A private purse is one that you get when you travel. Those little travel bags, you know, you wear them close on, and tuck them inside so that when you go to buy something, you've got to almost undress to get your money out. But it's that private person. In other words, it's something that's held very close and dear to you. And you are lavished with his love. We are loved by this God. And this is something that goes back. It's not just with us. It started with Israel. Listen to what Deuteronomy says. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord chose you to be a people for his treasured possession. Why? Love. This, these three adjectives of chosen, holy, and beloved are used of Israel. We come to the New Testament. They're used of Jesus. He's described as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and he is precious. Precious, that's what he is to me. Jesus the Lamb of God who gave his life for me. In this troubled world, he speaks peace to me because he's precious. Precious. And he describes that. And these three adjectives are now used of us. All that is used to describe Jesus, when we come to faith in Christ, they are now applied to us. And I just can't go past the fact that I'm chosen. I I wonder, when God looked down from above upon a poor creature like me, what was it that he saw that moved him? to save for all eternity. Could it be that he saw some commendable thing thinking sin I choose to reject? Or or was it the value of my service for him that caused him thus to elect? I wonder if it was I looking up from this earth to God in heaven above with eyes of faith and gratitude and a heart that was overflowing with love? Did I see in him all the beauty and grace that one could ever desire? I wonder if it was I who made the choice to leave the muck and the mire. No. No. I'm convinced it was not by my works, but by sovereign, unmerited grace is Not what he saw in me that he chose, nor was I thus seeking his face. But God, out of wisdom too deep for man and unsearchable depths of love, chose a sinner who was dead in sin to live with him up above. You see, you are not what you do and you are not what people say about you. You are not what you have. You are what God has done for you and what God declares you to be in Christ if you trust Jesus. This is the provision 
that enables all that comes next. Look at putting on. Our putting on Christ. We're getting dressed here. We're going to go into the wardrobe. This is a big walk-in robe, okay? And um, there's a lot more garments that can be adorned that are not described here. But we're going to look at eight, okay? And we're going to get dressed. These, the, the words put on kind of mean to get dressed, to get adorned, to clothe yourself. And a lot of Bible commentators kind of give you the idea that it's talking about a full-length garment. But that kind of focuses a lot on the external, and I think it involves the external. But you know what? When I'm in India, I had to buy on a couple of occasions some underwear. But in India, down south, they call it inners. Isn't that cool? So I had to go buy some inners. And I think that's what this is. These are attitudes, first and foremost. They're inners. They're underwear. But they also make presentable and allow us to adorn the doctrine of God in the outer expression of that. See, inner attitudes are always needed. The actions of those attitudes only come on occasion. But the occasions will be missed when the attitudes are absent. So the attitudes have to constantly be worn. You never go buck naked before a holy God and before a watching world. Now his holy gaze sees you and reads your life like an open book. There is nothing that you can hide from him, but he wants these attitudes to be constantly worn. And it's amazing that most of these are fruit of the spirit. In other words, you can't manufacture this. The best you can ever hope to do is to submit yourself to the one who can make it so. So let's look at them. Let's look at them. But let's keep in mind that we're not going to be focusing on being specialists. Oh, man, I, I want, I think I'm really called by God to have a compassionate heart. And I want to specialize in that. And somebody else might say, well, you know, I think I want to specialize in being kind. There's not a lot of that going on. I'm, I've heard that it's an endangered species. I think that's what I'm going to do. No, these eight qualities collectively are like breathing. See, if we're to live, we all have to breathe. And even though some of us have some breathing difficulties at times, and may even have some respiratory illnesses from time to time, there are no breathing specialists here, okay? None of you are going to go out today and say, wow, <laughs> she's a great breather. <laughs> Nobody quite does it like she does. See, it doesn't work like that in the Christian life. Um, this garment of Christ-likeness is, is seamless. It's not a patchwork of virtues sewn together that can be just as easily torn apart. These are, these, these are unified and holistic. Let's look at them for a moment. Um, compassionate hearts. I love reading some of the older translation. I think in the King James, it, it was bowels of mercy. <laughs> Somehow bowels, when you grow up in a doctor's home, just doesn't seem to suit Bible language. 
But it's because the ancients loved to describe attitudes and emotions in terms of physiological symptoms. You all know intense emotions affect your gut. Some of you who have been gifted, as you may think, uh, with the gift of worrying, okay, you can work yourself up into a lather. You can get, actually, you can get ulcers. Um, sometimes before something happens, you get these butterflies. You know, I, I get them. I still get them. You know, and I'm 65 for crying out loud. Get out of here. What are you doing? But, it, you know, you think, what, what, am I, what am I getting worked up about? But you have to kind of... But that doesn't really work either. So you know what I do? Lord, I don't know what's going on here, but you've got this. I, I can't do this, but you can. And, and we've been to good to go. So he, he, that's, we all understand this. Notice it says here that Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved. He felt in his own body this, the deep symptoms of his caring passionately for people. You know, many rooms... If I were living in the city, Melbourne, um, and I do this in Geelong, but Melbourne has an abundance, um, I just can't walk past people that are sitting on the street. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what their story might appear to be, but I, I just can't dismiss it without going to buy something to eat and sitting down alongside and just kind of having a chat and eating with them which means that my day in Melbourne sometimes can be really stretched out and somewhat annoying to people that I travel with because it's just really, really, really hard. Really hard. Why? Because, I, you know, you feel that. And as followers of Jesus, we recognize that there are weak, weary, and wicked people, people who are the least, the lost, the left out. And see, when you're pretty and you're young and you're smart, and you're connected, you can navigate fairly well. But if you're not that, it's hard to break in. Like, this would be, most people would say, oh, city on the hill is awesomely warm and welcoming, and everybody's really cool and nice. And that might be your estimation of, of city on the hill, but is that, is that everybody? If I came in and I was impaled with every imaginable piercing on my body and almost every inch of my flesh was covered in some beautiful color and artistic tattoo and my hair was full of dreadies and other living creatures and I maybe smelled as if I had not bathed in quite a considerable period of time, I just wonder, how would I fare? Would I be a gospel project? Or would I be a person that you had a compassionate heart for? Kindness. You and I have been saved because of God's kindness toward us in Jesus. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Our God is kind. You want to know the opposite of kindness? Out of the abundance of the heart, the thumb tweets. And there's a president on the other side of the pond 
who has an accent similar to mine, who's taken it to an art form. And people laugh. And evangelical Christians endorse. But our God is grieved because there ain't nothing like Jesus in that. Kindness is a deep, penetrating, permeating, pervading reality that seeps through every pore and nook and cranny in your life. And it's just refreshing to be around. Humility in a world that's gone crazy with power and bullying. And who'd ever thought that you could cyber bully someone? I mean, really. And I know it's real, but I mean, turn it off. Um, Humility's not thinking lowly or poorly of yourself. Rather, it's, it's having a proper view and estimation of yourself in the will of God. Jesus, who was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held tightly to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He was willing to wash the feet and receive the kiss of the very one who betrayed him. That's why Paul says, for by the grace of God given to me and to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Meekness. <laughs> wow. This is not weakness. Meekness is a, an ability to harness power and bring it under control in a way that unleashes the very life of Jesus within you. This word is used in three different ways in Greek literature. A soothing wind, a healing medicine, a cult that has been broken. You see, in each instance, there is a power. Wind can become a devastating storm. Too much good medication can kill. And an unbroken horse can break loose and wreak havoc. But this is power under control because a meek person doesn't have to fly off the handle because everything is being harnessed by Jesus. Meekness takes and suffers the energy, suffers the injury rather than inflicting it upon others. And then there's patience. You've got it in stacks, don't you? Patience. That ability to, to endure that long-suffering temperedness. It's the spirit that, that never loses patience and gets exasperated with people or situations, but just bears up under all those kinds of things. Paul speaks of how God was like that. He said, this is a trustworthy and deserving a full expectation statement. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason as the foremost, that Jesus might display his perfect 
patience as an example to those to believe in him for eternal life. Some of you are looking for love in all the wrong places and Jesus is ever so patient with you. But you know what? If he's going after you, you can't run from him. Uh, And there's no place to hide. He is, um, as one poet wrote, he is the holy hound of heaven who will dog your heels until he graciously brings you to the place where you will turn and see in him all the beauty that you could ever hope for or desire. He's bearing with us. We're to bear with one another, which means literally we we hold up or we hold back. When we revile, we bless. And when when we're persecuted, we endure. I mean, Jesus modeled that continually. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, such hostility of sinners against himself. Every time Jesus said yes, they say no. Every time Jesus said no, they go, yeah. Constant. Constant. Why? He bore with us. Why? Because he came to seek and to save that which was lost to forgive us, to absolve us from our guilt. And so we are to forgive others even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. You know what? One of the most niggling things that you'll have to deal with in all of life is forgiveness. People will hurt you and you will feel justified to nourish and nurse this hurt and this pain and hold it against them in ways that you take things literally hostage. And yet this attitude, these, this inner, this underwear, this grace, this habit of grace that we can't manufacture, this issuing forth of the very life of Jesus in us forgives. How? Even as God forgave us. And then it closes by saying, and above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's like this holy glue that holds all these virtues together. And you know when that happens, it not only brings these virtues together in this collective sense, (laughs) but it causes the world to sit up and take notice that this great global gospel community is really what they say. That there's no discrepancy between their lip and their life. That what they say, they actually are seeking to faithfully do. They're not perfect. But when they screw up, you know what they do? They say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And they own it. You see, the world doesn't expect us to be perfect, but they do expect us to be consistent. Because your perseverance under God is in your habits. Heaven and hell hang on your habits. You show me a person's habits and you give me a glimpse into their very souls. The habits you are developing and sustaining today will determine whether you will persevere to the end or down the road, you're going to make shipwreck of your faith. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it rightly, so a thought Reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap 
destiny. Where are you headed? Where, where are you headed? Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an isolated act, but a habit. There was a guy who worked in the CBD of a large city, and every day he rode the train home from work. And on one particular day, he was running really late. And as he came down from the top level to get to the platform below, he heard the announcement going over the speaker that his train was now departing and pulling out from the platform. And he began to run like a bat out of Hades. He fixed his eyes intently on that train because that was the last train for the day. And as he ran, his briefcase bumped a little boy who was holding a box, a puzzle. And the puzzle fell to the platform floor and all the pieces were strewn across it. And the man looked back at the little boy in the puzzle and he looked at his train that he knew now he was going to miss. And he quietly smiled and set down his briefcase. And he walked back to the little boy and knelt down and he began to pick up the pieces of the puzzle and saying, well, this looks interesting. And they put it all in the box and, and he, he stood up and he handed the box to the little boy and patted him on the shoulder and said, I'm sorry. I hope, I hope they're all there. And the little boy looked at him, wide-eyed, and asked, Mr., are you Jesus? At which the man realized that for just that moment, he was. You see, when we genuinely reflect the relational habits of grace, people will think that we're Jesus. But when I look at these relational habits of grace, they're beyond my ability. They are outside of my skill set. They're above, as they say, my pay grade. And so I must pray, as Thomas Akempis did, Lord, Make possible to me by grace that which I find impossible by nature. Let's bow together for a moment. Do you realize that God in his grace will give to you what you cannot acquire by your nature? You can bust a gut. You can try harder. But you know what? Sometimes it has nothing to do with trying harder. It's more about drawing closer. It's allowing your mind to just take a perpetual unending holiday on the beach of who you are in Jesus. And allowing the sunlight of being raised with him and seated in the heavenlies. And to recognize that you don't have to wait for blessings. Every spiritual blessing is yours already in Jesus. God rejoices over you with singing. God sings. 
over you and over me. And if you've never heard that song resonate, then I invite you to come to Jesus. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, trying to meet the grade and live up to the standard, and you never will. I will give you rest. You don't have to try. You just have to trust me to do it. And then all of the rest that we've looked at this morning come into place, but we never go past that. Because everything that you need for life and for godliness is wrapped up in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for giving to us your most beloved, holy, chosen son. He became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of you in him. Thank you for that. Thank you for the the wonderful hope of all that Jesus brings to us. And I pray that in our desire to know Jesus and to make him known that he will be seen in every little routine, mundane, under the radar, when nobody's looking sort of ways. And then maybe, just maybe, people will sit up and take notice because it will beg definition but won't be able to be described without bringing you into the story. And that's what we want. Bless now as we sing these closing songs and may the words of the songs and the very attitude of our inners bring you joy as we sing. Inhabit the praise now of your people. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.